Well, let's jump in. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to cover four whole verses tonight. Read along with me. It says this, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. My friends, we jump into the epistle that Paul wrote to Titus tonight. Let me begin by telling you a story about Captain Charlie Plum. Captain Charlie Plum was one of the best fighter pilots during the war in Vietnam. He flew 74 successful missions in an F-4 Phantom jet at nearly two times the speed of sound. This Top Gun trained aviator was the best of the best. And then five days before he was scheduled to return to the United States, on his 75th mission, his plane was hit by a surface-to-air missile. He ejected from his cockpit, pulled the ripcord on his parachute, and as he fell towards the earth, he looked up into the sky, into his parachute, which is what they're trained to do to count how many panels are still active in the parachute. He found that of the 18 hand-sewn panels, 15 were working. It was enough to slow his descent as he headed toward the earth. But then he noticed the sound of bullets whizzing past his head and machine guns firing at him from the ground. Shortly thereafter, he hit the ground in a rice paddy and was quickly captured by the Viet Cong. He was tortured and subsequently broke. You know that term? He broke, giving his captors every piece of information that he had. They're told to give their name, their rank, their birthday, social security number, and that's it. Unfortunately, he gave everything he knew under the torture he was subjected to. You know, I I heard him speak last week in person, and it was obvious that that fact was still a problem for him some 40 years later. Well, for the next 2,103 days, he was interred as a POW in various communist prison camps. Deprived of food, sleep, a working toilet, the company of others, and the freedom to move around, he was confined to a cell that was only eight feet long. That is three steps in each direction. The only thing in his cell, not even a light bulb, was a small two-gallon bucket which served as his latrine. He recalls that the most difficult thing about his experience was none of the things that I've mentioned so far. It wasn't physical. The the toughest thing about his experience was the battle that raged inside of his own head. As he clearly said, it was not about the eight-foot cell that surrounded me. It was about the eight inches between my ears. The battle was for sanity. It was to keep himself from going crazy because day turned into day, turned into week, turned into month, turned into year, and you begin, as he said, to lose your hold on what's true and what's imagined. 
and reality becomes something that's not objective anymore. Well, right in the middle of the struggle, one day at the core of a cell, he heard a small squeaking noise. Thought it was a cricket. When he went over to examine it, it was a little tiny wire sticking out from a hole in the, in the wall. Rolled up on the end of it was a little tiny square of toilet paper that had a code. Letters going this way, letters going this way, and it was a captive next door to him, an American soldier, another fighter pilot that had been shot down, that said, memorize this code, then eat this toilet paper. He did, and the code allowed them to communicate by pulling the wire a certain number of times they could deduce what the letters of the alphabet were, and they created a form of communication with which they could talk back and forth. Charlie Plum says that that new friend saved his life. He had become so forlorn, so depressed, that he was ready to take his own life. As I already said, he had betrayed his country by giving up vital information. He had been tortured, and now he was completely alone. And all he could think about day in and day out was his own plight. And all he could do was feel sorry for himself. But then came this man next to him, who breathed hope into him. Because he had concocted a way and figured out a way to communicate so that these men could have communication or relationship with one another. Now this changed Charlie's perspective on life and he became active in communicating with other soldiers who were interred around him. I, I guess I would say this, he went from a, a focus that was only on himself, thinking only of his own problems, to now having a purpose and thinking about other people and helping to alleviate their pain and their suffering. He had gone from being consumed with himself to thinking of others first. And I, I think that's a valuable lesson that he learned that life is not about you. Now, I'm just going to make the comparison tonight as Christians. Life is not about you either. And maybe you're not in an eight-foot cell, and maybe you don't use a two-gallon bucket as a toilet every day. I hope not. But certainly we get stuck in our own little world with our own little struggles and we get, we get interred in our own little mental prisons thinking that life's about me and my problems. And all those lack of security, lack of acceptance, lack of resources, lack of love, um, lack of gluten, all of these things get to us. And we begin thinking that this is, this is about me and we get depressed and we get forlorn and maybe sometimes we even think, I'm just going to end this thing. What's the point? I think we can learn a lot from Charlie Plum, right? Life is not about you. And as we begin this new semester, and it's a time for beginnings, and a time to start over, as it were, I want to firmly imprint right from the beginning on each of our minds, listen carefully, look up, life, this life, let me say it that way, this life is not about you. And this life is not about me. This life, listen carefully, is about Jesus Christ. There is no greater person to live for, there is no greater goal or aim than to live your life in the service and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we dive into this book of Titus, we're going to see this very clearly in Paul's introduction because Paul didn't live for himself. Paul lived for Christ. Paul wrote this letter because he loved Jesus Christ and he wanted to help his son Timothy. This is a small letter, only three chapters. It deals with a pastor struggling with his church. It's a Christian struggling with issues. 
And Paul, as his mentor, is coming along saying, let me help you. And he starts by reminding him, life's not about you. And he gives us an example by his own life in this introduction that we can follow tonight. And I think we can learn a lot from Paul. Because tonight, many of you are focused on your own problems. You're focused on your own lives, on your own business. You think of your own needs, your own wants, and you've drifted from nearness to Christ. And my hope as we work through this text is that you and I will be reminded that life is not about you. Life is about Jesus Christ. So, in these four verses, five characteristics. We're going to go as fast as we can, which isn't very fast. This is the man or the woman who lives a life for others and a life that honors Christ. There are five aspects of someone who remembers that life is not about them. Okay? That's what we're going to see. So, when you remember that life is not about you, then you will, number one, in our outline, when you remember that life is not about you, you will become, number one, a servant of God. You will become a servant of God. Now look at verse 1 with me. We're just going to get the first little bit there. You see this? Titus 1.1. Paul, a bondservant of God. Stop there. You guys know Paul, right? You remember Paul? Our friend Paul, Saul of Tarsus? Paul who wrote 13 books of the New Testament, the one who saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, the one who, according to 1 Corinthians, actually went to heaven. Paul, the original missionary, Right? He was the first one in the book of Acts to go preach to the Gentiles. He was the one who, while preaching, I think it's at Derby, was preaching in a city square. The people were so mad at him that they dragged him outside the city and stoned him to death. And while all of his friends and his followers were kind of around weeping and being sad, Paul got up, raised from the dead, blood from his everywhere, walked right back in the city square and started preaching again. That's who we're talking about who wrote this book. This is the man who healed the sick, who was bitten by a poisonous snake and had no effect. This is the man who preached too long one night, and a guy who was sitting in the windowsill fell asleep and then fell out of that second story window and fell to the ground dead. Paul goes downstairs, lays on top of him, prays, the man comes back to life. Paul goes back upstairs and preaches until dawn, all night long. We won't do that tonight, okay? And I can't heal you if you die, so that could be a problem. You think I go long? That was at midnight. He hadn't even preached in a while. And this guy, then at 6 a.m., he's still going anyway. But when you think about all the ways that Paul could have introduced himself, with all of that in his, in, in his repertoire, he comes with this very simple title. What does he lead with? I'm Paul, and what am I? I'm a slave. I'm a common slave. It's the word doulos. I'm just a servant of God. It's from a heart of great humility that he announces that he is bought, owned, and directed by God. Let me ask you a question. Somebody asks you to tell you, hey, tell me, some, tell me about yourself. Introduce yourself to this group. What type of title do you use? Yet, I know many men in ministry who cling to their titles. I'm the pastor of outreach. To my community. I'm the intern to the junior high pastor. Or in careers, people do this. I sit down in meetings at work and it's like all sorts of fancy titles that mean like he's the guy that washes the dishes and she's the person that takes the trash out. But, you know, we make up these titles to make ourselves feel better. 
We want to make ourselves look better. That's human nature. We and you and all of us want to be someone important. We want people to think highly of us. And we're desperate to have acceptance and position. And sometimes we just want a title so people will think, well, he's pretty important. She's pretty cool. But Jesus, in talking about that type of attitude in Matthew 23, 6, he's talking about the Pharisees. Just listen to this. He says, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. Listen to this one, verse 7. They love respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by men. And then he says, but do not be called rabbi, for there is one who is your teacher. And are you not all brothers? Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Do not even be called leaders, for one is your leader, and that is Christ. But the greatest among you will be your what? Slave. Yeah, your servant, your slave. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That's what Paul says. I'm just a servant. A common, ordinary servant. Now, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3, 4. Turn back to that really quick. I want to show something to you of what Paul says as he defines himself. And he, this will help us because I know what it is. You, you want to feel big and you want to say I'm something special. Paul reminds us of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. That's not the case. Look at that verse. Chapter 3, verse 4. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Here, here it is. They are what? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. And then he defines what he does. I planted... Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants, I love this, nor the one who waters is what? Is anything. But it's all about God who causes the growth. Hey friend, you're nothing. You're not an important person. You will never be a VIP. While you've been ransomed by the blood of Christ, and that gives you inherent value because of what he's done in your heart, and he loves you. In and of yourself, you are insignificant, unimportant, and unnecessary. And we must remember that in our lives. It's not a big self-esteem booster. This is more Christ is great, and we live to serve him. Flip three chapters over to 1 Corinthians 6, and look at verse 19. Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, watch, and that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Hey, guess what? Some of you that are struggling with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom and those lusts and those desires and all that you want in this world is still there and you're clutching the shreds of your old life, trying to hold on to the passing pleasures of sin. Let me be clear. You are a servant of God. He owns you. He bought you with a price. His own blood. Look at what he says there in verse 20. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You have been set free from your slavery to sin, and you are now a slave to righteousness. You know, there was a man at FBC, still goes there, who I used to see every Sunday, week after week, 
after the service was over, stacking chairs. Now, there's something special about this man. He wasn't a deacon. He wasn't part of the setup and the teardown crew. He wasn't a newcomer to the church, which is where it's a place that a lot of people start serving, right? He wasn't uh, single. He didn't have a ton of disposable time. In fact, he wasn't even a young man full of the energy of youth. No, he was an old man. He was suffering from great daily, daily pain from a chronic injury sustained through a lifetime of backbreaking labor as a farmer. He was involved in one of the most difficult ministries in the church in which he gave much of his free time to counseling others who were in need. In fact, his title was as an elder of FBC. This man served as an elder. His name? Bob Richardson. And after church every Sunday, while many were busy trying to talk to friends and set up a lunch plan and get out of there, there was Bob, old man Bob, using his broken body to serve God by stacking chairs. And Bob wouldn't describe himself as anything more than a servant of Christ. And I would argue that Jesus' words in Matthew 23, the greatest among you shall be your servant, apply to Bob, that he is one of the greatest men I know. What about you? What about your life? You let others do the service? Think that's below you to get involved in physical labor or there's certain ministries that I'm just not gifted for that, right? God didn't gift me to change diapers in the nursery. I'm for more important things. Really, that's a gift? I'm not so sure about that. Are you not a slave of Christ? When he says go, do you go? When he says speak, do you open your mouth? When he commands you to do something, do you obey? This is what it means to live in a way where life is not about you. And so Paul reminds us through his own testimony that he's nothing but a servant of God. And guess what, friends? So are we. Servants of God. Number two, if you would remember that life is not about you, then you would be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You would be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to verse 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant of God, and look at the next phrase, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle of Jesus Christ. The term apostle is just a transliterated word, right? There's no English equivalent. It's just moved from the Greek into the English. So apostle is kind of what it is in the Greek as well. It means messenger or one who is sent. And here Paul introduces himself as an authoritative messenger sent by who? By Jesus Christ, right? Now, there are two types of apostles in the world. Those with a capital A and those with a lowercase a. Let's look first at the apostles with a capital A. In order to be an official apostle, like a real-life apostle, you need two things, according to Scripture. Number one, you need to be directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There was only 13 men that that ever happened to. The 12 disciples, minus Judas, Andrew, Matthias... And Paul, who saw Christ on the road to Damascus and was commissioned by him. These men were known because they not only preached the message of Christ, but number two, they performed incredible works and miracles that validated their ministry as from God. Okay? Commissioned, backed up with these works. Now the question arises, do apostles with a capital A still exist today? Get the answer in your mind. 
Some say they do. And maybe you're thinking that right now. Because there's schools for apostles. And there's apostolic uh, partnerships and all sorts of things out there. In fact, you could, for a small fee, go to school in Redding, California at a place called the Supernatural School of Ministry where you can be trained by present-day apostles that they believe have a capital A. They will teach you to do ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit, to heal people, speak in tongues, slay in the Spirit, etc. I was looking at their website today. It says this about their senior pastor. Quote, healings ranging from cancer to broken bones to learning disorders and emotional healing are happening with regularity. This is the children's bread. And these works of God are not limited to revival meetings. The church is learning how to take this anointing to the schools, workplace, and neighborhoods with similar results. I wish they'd come to my workplace. I work in surgery. I would love them to heal people before they had surgery. Anyway, Bill teaches that we owe the world an encounter with God. And that a gospel, listen, a gospel without power is not the gospel that Jesus preached, end quote. Gospel without power means that there are no supernatural works coming along with it. But listen, this is not how the New Testament defines apostles with a capital A. Those 12 men plus Paul, who were sent and commissioned directly by Christ to turn the world upside down, they lived and they died proclaiming the simple message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In contrast to these present-day apostles who, like this man, Bill Johnson, live comfortable lives and are amassing significant wealth, the true apostles died penniless and all but one as a martyr. There is a difference between that and today's apostles. The Bible's clear. The apostles were given to the church as a gift. Let me just read the first couple words of Ephesians 4.11. And it says that, you want want to turn there? Go there, because this is kind of cool. You want to see this. Ephesians 4.11. Still Paul writing, because he wrote half the New Testament. And he says this, And he, speaking of God, gave some as what? As apostles. As a gift. It's an office in the church. Some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, let me say this one more time. There are no present-day apostles. Sorry, I'll say it for the first time. There are no present-day apostles with a capital A. Uh, when these 13 men died, the apostles died with them. Those that exist today are false teachers and charlatans. And we'll look at this more at the end of chapter 1 because there's a big section of false teachers. However, there are apostles that exist today, but they have a little a instead of a big A. In fact, there are some of them in this room right now. I'm an apostle with a little a. And so are you if you claim the name of Christian. And if you walk with Jesus Christ, you too are an apostle with a little a. Let me show you. Flip back to Matthew 28, verse 18. Because I bet you didn't ever think of yourself as an apostle. But I'm going to show it to you right here. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came up and spoke to them, speaking of the twelve, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Here it is. Here is the commissioning. Here is the authoritative sending. Here is Christ making you one who is sent out. You ready? Verse 19. 
Go therefore, all of you, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Hey friend, you've been commissioned by Jesus Christ to bring the message of salvation to a lost and dying world. You are his ambassador, representing him into a foreign land. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in your Bibles and look at verse 20. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Let me show it to you even clearer if you're still not getting this. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Messengers, those who are sent, those who represent Him. We are His ambassadors as though God were making an appeal through us. It's as if God is speaking right through our mouths. Right? That's what He says there. We beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. It doesn't get clearer than that. You have been called to represent Jesus Christ to this world. You and you and you and you and I. We are His ambassadors, His apostles, His emissaries, agents of heaven, ministers given a specific task. And that task is to bring the message of salvation to this world. So how are you doing? How are you doing with that? Are you representing Him well? Do those around you know that you're an ambassador? Have you been making your purpose known to others and talking about your divine calling? You know, I'm an apostle. People look at you like you're crazy. That's okay. It's okay. When you remember and are obedient and follow your mandate as an apostle or as an ambassador, you remember that life is not about you because what comes out of your mouth is Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. So you first you'll be a servant of God, second you'll be ambassador of Christ. Number three, you'll be a worker for others. Or I have here a supporter of the bros. One of the you can put one, anything that you want down for number three. You can be a supporter of the bros. So go back to Titus one, verse one. Paul, a bond servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And now he's going to break this down into three aspects of how Paul supports those around him. Number one, for the faith of those chosen of God. Number two, and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. Number three, and the hope of eternal life. I can't go deep because we'll be here all night. But briefly, let's look at Paul's investment into others, okay? Paul's a worker into others for the purpose. He's an apostle for the purpose of these three things. First, let me just tell you what these are. These three phrases we could say are salvation, sanctification, and glorification, okay? So first, salvation. Look at that first phrase. He's an apostle for the faith of those chosen of God. That word for right there is a purpose clause in the Greek. And it's declaring why Paul's an apostle. And the answer is, he's an apostle, he's a servant of God for the faith of the chosen. Or to bring those who are chosen to salvation. Say it a different way. His purpose, first of all, is to see people saved. Are you seeing that? It's for their faith. And we can get all worked up about this phrase, chosen of God. Chosen of God. There have been many debates, even church splits. Uh, friendships have been ruined. And even denominations have been formed over this issue. It's the issue of election, predestination. And in a nutshell, we could say man's free will 
versus God's sovereignty in, in salvation. We we're not going to go deep into this tonight because we don't have time. But let's just look at the text before us and see what it says. What is clearly evident in verse 1 is this. God clearly chooses people. Can you look at that verse again? Chosen by God. Chosen of God. Do you see that there? It's pretty plain. We know from the Bible that God chose Abraham, right? Pulled him out of Ur of the Chaldees, sent him on his way. We know that God chose a specific nation in Israel, set them apart, gave them his truth and salvation. We know that God chose David from amongst his brother. We know that God chose 12 men and called them to be his disciples. We know from 1 Timothy 5.21 that even some of the angels are elect and chosen. And so it should come as no surprise to us that God chooses certain sinners for salvation. And we'll come to more detail on this next week. But I just want to ask if you'll accept the teaching of this verse. Many of you will. Some of you might struggle with this. That God has elected or chosen certain individuals for salvation. And if you won't, then come talk to me after. I'd love to discuss this with you. Because the idea of God choosing and the sovereignty of God, God's control over all things, even salvation, is woven throughout the scripture. I'd love to talk with you about that. But here's Paul, and he says, I'm at work. I'm, I'm doing this for the purpose of the salvation, for the faith of others. Secondly, I'm doing this for their sanctification. Look back there at verse, uh, is that verse 2? And the knowledge of the truth. Not just for their faith of the chosen, but for the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. And like I said, that's sanctification. Once you're in the faith, that is that you've submitted your life to Jesus Christ, repented of your sins, and are following Him. The next step is to grow in your salvation, to grow in, in your faith. That's the process, sanctification for your entire life till you die. How do you grow? Look back at the verse. You need the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth will lead you to, a, to godliness, to a godly life, to piety, to be closer to Him. Let me say this a different way. Listen carefully. Okay, this is earth shattering. Are you ready? If you are to grow in Christ, you need the Bible. Okay? Do you get that? You need the truth and the knowledge of the truth. Let me say it a different way. Your growth, Christian, is directly dependent on your intake of Scripture. Your growth is directly dependent on your intake of Scripture. You will not grow by sitting in a field meditating on your navel. You will not grow from sitting at Starbucks listening to calming music around you. You will grow when you decide to take the Word of God seriously and to digest it as a normal part of your spiritual diet. Open to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to see this. It's an incredible verse. 1 Peter 2, 2. Your growth is directly dependent on your intake of the scripture or your knowledge of the truth. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, he says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. It's the same word there that is often used for a sinful lust, guys. That strength of desire, long, epithumeo, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may what? You may grow. 
in respect to your salvation. You want to grow up, Christian? Open the Bible and read. Some of you are wondering why those around you are growing and seem to be maturing in Christ, and you seem to be left at the starting blocks. You can't seem to get off the line. Your faith seems to be stagnant, and there seems to be moving. What's the difference? Okay, I can't speak comprehensively, but I can tell you at least one difference. They're in their word, and you're not. You may pay lip service to it. You may carry that big MacArthur study Bible, but until you open it and spend time there daily, you will not grow. Some of you know so much about so many random things. You're like walking encyclopedias of uselessness. You know, I know the secret menu at Starbucks and at In-N-Out. Get you the Flying Dutchman. I'll get you all these things. We'll dial this in. You may know all the stats of your favorite athlete or favorite sport. You may know all there is to know about the iPhone 7. Well, you know, it's got two cameras on the back. And now you can put it in the water. And there's no jack anymore because it's all wireless for your ears. And guess what? The button's different at the bottom. And you've told everybody how cool this thing is, right? Really? That's, that's where you're, you're spending your time and your knowledge? This treasure trove of information that's really, really worthwhile. But listen, listen. How well... How well do you know the Word of God? How well do you know the Word of God? Can you see what the psalmist in 119.105? God, your Word is a lamp to my feet. Guides my every step. It's a light to my path. I don't take even a step without that light in front of me. So if you want to grow in godliness, then that's where it starts. Reading, studying, meditating, memorizing, listening to sermons. Engage with the truth. So this point about sanctification, knowledge of the truth, growth and godliness. You get salvation first, you get sanctification. Third, you get glorification. Glorification. This final component is found at the beginning of verse 2. See it right there where Paul says, in the hope of eternal life. In the hope of eternal life. Every person who's in the faith, that's a Christian. Every person who's trying to grow to be more like Christ and is striving for godliness, eagerly longs for heaven. And that eager longing is what he calls here the hope of eternal life. That is the end to which we labor, Christians. It is the goal of our faith to be home with the Lord, to see his face. We sang about it earlier. To hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. To be freed from this body of sin. To be finished with the crying and suffering and pain of this life. That is the hope of eternal life. And biblical hope is different from the way that we commonly think about hope. Right? We, we talk about hope as like, I really hope I get into my college. I really hope I get that job. Oh, I hope she likes me. <gasps> Biblical hope is different. Biblical hope is a firm expectation. It is a firm expectation. It, it is uh, to look forward to something with the confidence that it will be there. The idea here is that even though we can't see heaven, our entrance into heaven is a fixed reality. The hope of eternal life. But you might say, but Sean, I struggle with that. Because sometimes I lose that sense of certainty in my life. And I feel like I'm off the pathway. And I, I, I don't have the assurance of my salvation. Doubt creeps into my heart. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it to heaven or if I'm on the right path. How do I know ultimately that God is going to accept me? 
I fall into my old way of life and sin's so appealing, my fleshly desires get the best of me and I want to hope and I want to eagerly long for that but sometimes I'm just not sure if I'm there. How can I be confident in this? Look back at verse 2. Paul gives us the ultimate affirmation. He says that God, who cannot lie, promised this eternal life long ages ago. So that promise, listen, it's guaranteed by God based on his character. He cannot lie, right? He promised it. Hebrews 6.18 says that it's impossible for God to lie. He's made a promise, and I bet you've made promises before. I have. One of my most notorious promises happened at Lake Powell some years ago, riding with somebody else behind the boat on the back of an inner tube, and the, the tubes that you guys know are these big tubes where like eight people jump on and they just sling around. The old tubes were these little donuts. And they had skirts around so you couldn't go through them. But, but you'd put two or three tubes out there at a time. And the goal was to kick or push or get the other person off the other tube. That, it was just a, it was a man sport. Grueling. I'm just kidding. But it was great. And uh, I was back there slinging along. And there was a guy next to me. And I reached over and I tried to kick him. And I kicked the back of his foot and I broke my second toe. And uh, I, in that very moment, let go of the tube. And as the boat was still moving away from me, in the middle of this canyon with nobody around, I yelled out, I will never tube again. (laughs) It was a promise. And I was fiercely committed to that promise. People asked me over the years, come tube with us. Tubing's so awesome. You got to do it. I I, I made a promise I would never do it. And then one day, I was at Lake Powell. Again, back to the scene of the crime. With the Dodsons. And Tracy Dodson said, come on, get in our tube. It's this blue tube, you might remember it from camp. It has three seats in it. It's the kind of wide thing. She goes, it's impossible to flip this thing over. And she kept working on me and working on me and working on me. And I'm watching Jesse Dodson out there. And that thing's going to the side. And the tube is banking up at, I kid you not, 90 degrees. And it just holds there and comes back down. These crazy whips. But it never flips. We've never flipped it before. Fine. I broke my word. I got in the tube. And within about two minutes, that thing was sitting like this. And in a fraction of a second, the blink of an eye, the last trumpet sounded. And that thing went, boom, right over. And it flattened me under the boat. And I regretted ever breaking my promise. And I promised again never to tube. I will tube with my daughters, but that's because the boat was like this. And back there, it's fine. Now watch this. That's a promise from me. Maybe you've made promises that you've broken or kept or whatever. A promise from God is completely different. When did God make this promise? Look down at the text. What does it say? What does it say? When did he make it? Anybody? Long ages ago. What do your other translations say? Before time began. Anybody else? Okay, this also can be translated before the world began, before the ages began, before the beginning of time, before eternal ages, before time began. These are all different translations. Before creation, God made this problem. So this made me ask the question, who's he promising to? Who's there before creation? Nobody except who? Except himself. The promise is made from him and to him. And he will keep 
His word. And I've got to move on, but I think that's something to be meditated on. God made the promise before there was anything that he would offer eternal life. And that we would have the ability and the confidence to have an eager expectation that glorification is part of our future. And it's based on the very word of God. And friend, you can trust that word and take it to the bank. So stop doubting and stop fretting and stop wondering where you are. If you are in Christ, then that eternal life is yours. It's not an if, it's a when. Now back to our point. Life is not about you. And Paul has reminded us through his efforts and his labor to see people saved, to see people sanctified, and to give them the hope of glory. He's reminding himself and us that life's not about us. So let me ask you, do you have eyes for others? Are you praying for others? Are you encouraging them? Are you lending a helping hand like Paul was, to see other people moved along in this process from salvation to sanctification to glorification. That's our job. That's why we're here. Life's not about us. It's about Christ and it's about them. Okay? Point number four. When you remember that life is not about you, you will become a preacher of the gospel. A preacher of the gospel. Not only will you be, not only will you be a worker of others or a supporter of the bros, not only will you be an ambassador of Jesus Christ, not only will you be a servant of God, but you will also be a preacher of the gospel. Look at verse 3. It says that at the proper time manifested, or he manifested even his word, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Okay? The eternal life that was promised in verse 2 was manifested or revealed, Paul says, at the proper time. I like that phrase, at the proper time. It means at the proper time. It's a Greek word, the word kairos. That's kind of cool, right? It's a, it means like a moment in time or a specific opportunity, or you could say it's at the right time. Okay? Galatians 4.5 says this, excuse me, 4.4 says, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. Or you guys know Romans 5.6, right? For while we were still helpless, at the right time time, Christ died for the ungodly. It was manifest. It was made clear at the proper time. And it says there, it was according to his word, right? Even his word. So it was manifest in his word, and the most clear place we see the word of, of God is where? It's in Jesus Christ. And I don't want to go too deep into this, but in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, John says this, what was from the beginning, what we have heard what we have seen with our eyes, what our hands have held and we have touched <clears throat> concerning the word of life, it was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us talking about Christ. What's the point? Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is revealed as the word of God, God in the flesh bringing salvation. That word was imprinted into the scripture and we hold it in our hands today. And right there it says that Paul was given that proclamation to make. Okay? Look back at verse 3. This proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Alright, I know I'm losing you here, but here's the point. Paul was entrusted with this message. That God had imprinted the scripture that was given through Jesus Christ. He has been called to preach. Look at that word. It says the commandment of God. Paul was commanded to preach this word. Hey, guess what? 
you too have been commanded or given a mandate to preach the word. Now, that doesn't mean that you've got to get behind a pulpit and preach. Okay? It doesn't mean you need to stand up on a soapbox like Eddie Roman and go out and Kevin Harvey and preach to, down at Oceanside where people are throwing tomatoes at you. you don't, that's not what this necessarily means, although it may. What this means is that we have been called to declare the truth that God is the Savior of all men. We have been called to preach this message of salvation, this gospel, this good news that Jesus lived and died and rose again so that your sins could be forgiven and that you could have a restored relationship with Jesus Christ by giving up your life and following Him. Notice that Paul's not called to whisper. He's not called to tiptoe. He is called, it says the word there is proclamation. It is our word for preach, to herald, to, to, uh, to bring out and to make known. It's a large task, a great responsibility. And to preach the gospel, friends, is a more noble job than to be a governor or a king. It is a more noble job than to be a teacher of science or an inventor of technologies. It is more noble than being a teacher of physical education. Because those that can't teach, do. And those that can't teach, where where am I going with this? Oh, they teach gym. I got it, I got it. They teach gym, right, Megan? Okay, sorry, that's Inside joke that I just messed up. Anyway. It's more precious. Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ is more precious than being a multimillionaire and having all that money can buy. And here's the point. You and I have been called, like Paul, to deliver this message to others. And when you remember that life is not about you, you will open your mouth and speak to the lost the saving truth of Jesus Christ. It will be wrapped up in the pages of this book, transferred and stamped onto your heart. And the greatest way to declare that life is about Christ is to tell others about Him. Number five, we're moving towards the end. Look at verse four. Paul reminds us that we need to be investors in the future. Investors in the future. Look at, look at how he says in verse four. He's writing, that was the whole introduction, that was all about him, and now he says, this is all, my little letter here is to Titus, Who's Titus? Titus is my true child in a common faith. Okay? We're not going to go deep here. I want you to notice a couple things. The first is that he is a true child. He, he is somebody that Paul's a father to, a mentor to. Paul is responsible for his salvation, and he has raised him as a Christian. Okay? 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Paul says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What's the point? Paul was all about the next generation. He's all about it. Here he is towards the end of his life, and what's he doing? He's pouring himself out into the younger generation. Titus is a young man, according to chapter 2, verse 7. Timothy is a young man. These are men that needed guidance and help, and Paul's not sitting there going, I am the wise one. Come to me for advice. Titus, I'm writing you this letter because I want to help you. I want to help you grow. I want to help solve problems in your churches in Crete. Right? And so he's, he's teaching and he's giving of himself and he's investing in the future. And here's the point. Not one of us is here today aside from the fact that somebody in our life was obedient to this. Right? Every one of us is here because somebody shared the gospel with you. It may have been a parent or a friend, or sitting in church, but you heard this because there's been a line of faithful preachers and faithful men and women all the way through history to you. And your job is to take that to the next level, 
to the next people who would come after you, like Paul did. And notice this other thing. I love this. He says, he's my true child in a common faith. Titus is a Gentile. Paul is a Jew. They had different religions, different social backgrounds, culturally separated. And he says that he is my child, my son, in a faith that is common. We share the same Lord, the same Savior, the same promises of eternal life together. Even though he's old and I'm young, we're common. Even though I'm an elite Jew and he's a common Gentile, we are common. It's really cool. No barriers for race or social class or age. Paul was ready to go. He was ready to go. Now, I can't go any deeper than this because it's, we're running out of time. But I love that he says there in verse 4, as he tries to encourage and to invest in Titus, who had a big job, and we're going to come back to this next week, he just said this, let me remind you, in your struggles, in the difficulties of life, the Savior God gives you grace and he gives you peace. Titus, just relax. Cease striving. God is gracious. God is full of peace. Calm down and chive on. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> All that's found the Savior. So we're moving because next week we'll come back. And I just want to address this theme of God our Savior next week. That you see me, it's, it's in this phrase, it's here twice, seven times in this epistle. God our Savior. We're going to look at that. So I, I skipped around those parts just a little bit because we're going to come back next week. But let me ask you, are you investing in other people? Some of you are so happy to talk with me or some other staff, but you kind of walk away from those people that are bothered to you because they don't know as much. You're trying to really learn and grow. When, when is the time for you to actually turn and say, I'm going to invest in you? I'm going to invest in you, not just get poured into myself. You get bored with younger and less mature Christians in conversation? That's a shame. It really is. Because none of the staff would be here tonight if we felt that same way. Our desire is to invest in others because that's what it means to live a life that's not about you. Who in this room will go to junior high or high school ministry to invest in others as you've been invested in? To pour yourself out into other people? Because when you invest in them and in the future, you show that life is not about you. So, as we wrap this up, I want to remind you of these five characteristics of the life of Paul. And, and we want to seek to live like this also. Be servants of God, ambassadors of Christ, workers for others or supporters of the bros, preachers of the gospel, and investors in the future. Now, i got to just finish with Charlie Plump. Because when he finished telling his story last week, it was just this amazing thing. There was a lot of people with teary eyes, not me, but it was a pretty cool story. He recounted this life-changing experience that happened to him a number of years after he was released from prison. Back in California, at a restaurant one night having dinner, he was approached by a man roughly his same age. The man said, are, are you Captain Plum? He said, yes. The man said, you flew jet fighters in Vietnam, and you were on the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk, and you were shot down, and you parachuted into enemy hands and spent six years as a prisoner of war. He said, yes. How, how do you know all of that? His reply, because I packed your parachute. Speechless, Captain Plum grabbed the man by the hand and said, thank you. And the man said, huh, I guess it worked. <laughs> Charlie Plum replied, yes, sir, indeed it did. 
Let me ask you a question, Plum said. Do you, do you keep track of every parachute you pack? No, he responded. It's enough gratification for me just to know that I've served. Charlie said, I, I didn't sleep much that night. He was, he was playing through his mind and wondered how many times he might have passed that man on board the aircraft carrier without even noticing him because he was a top gun aviator that flew in the skies and this was a man that stood at an eight foot wooden table below the water line packing parachutes every day. Why would a flyer talk to a low level servant? How many hours did that man spend on that long wooden table in the bowels of that ship weaving the shrouds and folding the silks of those chutes. Charlie could have cared less until that one day when his parachute came along the line and that man packed it for him. And he said this, it's enough to know that I've served. And I think that's a good reminder to us because life is not about us. Life is about Jesus Christ. And listen carefully, it's enough to know that we've served Jesus Christ to get lost in his work and his ministry, not for our recognition or for our glory, but to know that we've served him. I want to challenge you to go from this place remembering that life is not about you. I want you to bow your heads and we'll pray together. And Lord, as we uh, conclude our time, We are so thankful that you are a Savior God who didn't leave us in our sin but who offered us eternal life. May we go from this place seeking to honor you with every word, with every action, and with every thought of our lives. We pray that we wouldn't do it in our own strength trying to work harder and be better, but that we would submit and trust in the Savior who has already wiped away our sins and live in light of the gratitude of a response that wants to serve Him because we love Him. We want you to be glorified as we sing now. In Jesus' name, amen.